You are listening to the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host, Umar Osman. Alright, assalamualaikum everyone. I'm excited to be joined by Brother Muhammad Faris, who is actually our most uh, recurring guest on this podcast. I think you should probably sponsor it at this point. Um, but alhamdulillah, always happy to speak with Brother Muhammad and kind of get his thoughts on various things. And uh, today actually is, alhamdulillah, a very uh, special occasion, the release of a new book. Uh, Brother Muhammad has been working on the Baraka Effect book, which I'll have links in the notes. It comes out January 26, uh, 2024, inshallah. But before we get into what the book is about, you know, one, one thing that you and I have, have in common is that we have a lot of ideas, a lot of things that we always want to work on. You know, I, I've got like 25 unfinished projects in in a draft state of, of some sort. So I know it takes a lot to actually commit and say, I'm going to work on one thing for like a year or two years or however long it took and ignore all the other great ideas that I had, all the other things that I, I want to work on. And I'm, I'm going to stay disciplined, you know, working only on this. So what was that journey like? What was what was it about this this topic of, you know, that you've covered in the Baraka effect. Uh, and how did you get to the point of writing this book? Thank for having me. Love to be here always and love to have this conversation with you. I know we, we have a lot, we, we talk a lot, we chat a lot. Sometimes it's great to kind of sit down and kind of uh, discuss these ideas and topics. So yeah, so I think the the, the journey of Baraka started, for those of you who know me, it's been writing on Barak Muslim, uh, the blog, BarakMuslim.com. I started that in 2007, and at that time, this idea of barak was was there. I kind of recognized that this idea of barak is important to this concept of productivity, because in the end, you can have all the cool time management techniques and all the amazing sort of apps and softwares and life hackers and, and all the GTD stuff, but if there's no barak in your time, no barak in your focus, no barak in your energy, it's like it's, it's, you just don't get the most out of it. So I recognize the idea of Barak is super important to this to the concept of productivity. So, so it's been kind of brewing in the back for a while until 2017, when you helped me with that speech, with the, the keynote speech at the World Domination Summit. This is a mainstream event, and Chris Killebo was like, hey, come over and talk about something from Islamic faith to a bunch of authors and entrepreneurs. And this idea of Baraka. I guess like the missing soul of productivity was 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 the title, and it really resonated. People really caught on to that. Um, so that gave me that first indication. This is a topic that, or is a theme or topic that needs to be explored further, and it's something that even for mainstream non-Muslim audience, they would find it really helpful. Um, Let, let's pause there for a second. So you know, in in that speech, you're you're taking a deeply spiritual concept. Uh, something that unless, I mean, quite frankly, unless you firmly have faith in Allah SWT, you don't believe that this would exist, right? How did you approach explaining it to such an audience? Uh, how, you know, kind of what did you say that made it resonate? How did you explain it to them? I think the first thing, I think this is the intention we went out there to give a speech is to be very clear to that this is a spiritual concept, right? I didn't go there trying to water it down. I think a lot of times we, when we want to explain Islamic concepts to a mainstream audience, we tend to want to water it down or remove the spirituality out of it. So oh, it's okay, as long as we believe in something, believe in the universe, something, then it works. But I think we just went there with that 
So they said, well, this is who we are, this is what we believe in, this is the sort of the key idea, like believing God is part of the idea of barakah. But I think what helped, and I think we we discussed this when we were doing the speech, development speech together, is, is examples, just being a lot of examples that people, that resonate people. For example, I talked about, hey, when you wake up early in the morning and you get things done, you know, get a lot of things done. Well, guess what? That's called barakah, you know, and I mentioned the hadith about the early hours of blessed my nature is barakah for my early hours in the morning. Or when, hey, you know, the food for two is enough for four. So the idea that, you know, when you, when you share food, there's, there's barakah. And in fact, we've been told, hey, you should go out today and split a sandwich with a friend and see that even though you are having half a sandwich, you may end up feeling more full. And people actually reached out to me later on and said, hey, you have to try this. It's really cool. And someone said that I actually shared a sandwich and a bottle of wine with my friend. I'm like, great. <laughs> so there's a barakah there. So I was like, great. One step at a time. One step at a time. So I think it's that. I think the examples... And the other thing is, is just frame the again making the stories right. Tayo Camel, I brought the Tayo Camel story. Um, there's a few stories that I shared. I think that really it clicked. So people say, you know what, I I understood this whole baraka thing is about. It made sense. So that really helped. Um, so back to the story of the book. So 2017. So initially I thought this might be a topic I might write for the mainstream. But then 2018 came and I, I wrote the article, Baraka Culture was Hustle Culture. And that also took off, especially among Muslim circles. People really resonate with that. The idea of Baraka Culture, Hustle Culture, they get putting a name to what they're experiencing in life. They're like, yeah, we struggle with Hustle Culture. Things are crazy, you know, the go, go, go. And this seemed like an antidote. So that, so that was like another kind of push that there's something here that people really resonated, resonate with. So we spoke about a culture, released the Barakal Manifesto, which is like a hundred words that capture Barakal culture. Again, that people resonate with that as well. So every time I was kind of writing in that theme, like whenever you kept on pressing that button, it just hit a nerve. People really, those articles went viral. People started sharing it. You might even, sometimes you even hear it in Khutbah Jumaah, you're like, wait, that sounds very familiar. So people started sharing. So I realized there's something here. Then came the challenge of deciding, all right, so I seems like this is a book you should write about. And then I went to our friend, uh, you know, one of the bookstores, you know, who's also who's a fan of your book as well. And um, I asked him, hey, is there a book in English language on Baraka? And he's like, nope. I'm like, what do you mean, nope? He's like, well, there's stuff about Baraka in different books, but there's one book that talks about Baraka. And I'm like, and he's like, and of course, gives me the classic look and says, maybe you should write it. And I'm like, don't do that, right? That's like, there was always when he, he puts it on the spot, he's like, hey, why do you should write it? So then I realized, okay, I need to write this book. Then I was... I was stuck on this idea, should I write for the mainstream versus all right for the Muslim audience? And I think I sat on that for about a year. Like just because number one, I got interest from a mainstream publisher who actually attended the, the keynote 2017. Uh, and they wanted to give me a publishing deal. Like, hey, you know, we like this idea. We want to write a book with us. But I knew at that time, I wasn't, I don't have the skill or the language or the ability to explain the spiritual concept to a mainstream audience. Yes, I mean, made it, made it in a 20 minute speech, but in a whole book, I felt like that was a, t a tough call. So I really struggled. So one year I'm struggling with this. I'm like, should I write this book or not? Mainstream was Muslim. And then I met a few of my friends, you know, Peter Gould, Chris, and we had in, kind of like a middle mastermind. And then he's, and they're like, which book would you write right now? I'm like, the one for the Muslims. Like, All right, just, just write that, man. Forget, you know, the mainstream one, you'll come to it write this for the for the muslims so that's when i thought okay i'll buckle down and actually write this and that's when i started to write the book i think one thing that's interesting so you start you know a lot of your writing started with productivity which is kind of let's say a general a general skill set everyone wants to be more productive 
Um, but then there's an Islamic angle to the productivity, right? Like we're, we're talking about ibadah and, you know, all, all these, you know, kind of Islamic elements mixed into what is traditionally dominated by, you know, secular ways of being productive, right? Getting things done framework, um, Pomodoro timers, you know, different techniques, right? But also mindsets around productivity, whether it's like, you know, the urgent versus important matrix and how to categorize, you know, so there's lots of tools and methodologies and frameworks and, and all these things. And then you can bring in an Islamic angle, which, uh, you know, it, it is helpful. It has value, all of those things. But I feel like part of the journey now is going from, you know, those those tools were nice, but now we've worked our way actually to the deeper issue. So it's almost like instead of starting at the foundation and working upward, it's almost like we started at the uh, the oh. end products and now working back to the foundation. So what is, what is that thought process and journey been like of going from, okay, here's because, because it's like, here's the things that are look like they're helping me day to day and they are, and they're, and they're working, but now actually assessing, well, what's the, the actual mindset and belief at the root of all of that. I love that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Exactly the journey started off with those peripherals, with those tools, with those techniques, right? The tips, techniques, the strategies. And then you start, I don't know if it's me getting older and getting more philosophical. <laughs> you, start, yeah. you started going kind of like, okay, it kind of doesn't, doesn't, you, because you realize sometimes you know, life happens, you get busy, you got kids, you get old parents, like some of those things just don't fit life, right? Yeah. Some of those things just don't fit with the realities of people, what people facing. And I think what what helped to kind of two things happen. Number one is recognizing this sort of this Islamic worldview, right? The saying, okay, imagine again two people with two separate worldviews. You have somebody who says, "This is it. This is the this life. Is it? This is it? You know, we live for whatever years, and that's it. There's no akhirah. There's no God. There's no judgment day, and you just got to make the most of it. That's one worldview, and that will inform a certain type of productivity or inform how they perceive productivity, what means what success to them. And then there is Islamic worldview that says, there's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, there's akhirah, you have, you know, this purpose for you in this life, and this is and, and it's an entire different worldview. And then that will inform what it means to be productive versus not being productive. So if I'm, if I'm, you know, you know, like the hadith said, if I'm putting a, most of the food in my spouse's mouth, or if I'm focusing, taking care of my elderly parent, that's considered productive in this long worldview. But in the hustle cultural view, like, oh yeah, that's nice stuff, but it's, it's it's a waste of time. You should be in the grind, doing some launching next product or doing some next, you know, some next big project, you know, getting some important thing off your to-do list. So I feel like that those worldviews really um, recognizing the fact there's two worldviews made me reassess all this, all the stuff I was talking about. And and the Barak Effect book is, is almost like the, the philosophical grounding of what we were talking about. Alhamdulillah, looking back, some things did make sense and it's still within Islamic worldview, but just putting a name for it. That's one. One is the worldviews. The second one is the work of Bill Rothman's work. Um, when he was like, well, you know, discussing who the human being is, right? So productivity science is a, is a human science. So again, what does the human being, who is the human being? It talks about the nafs and the aql and the qalb, right? The kind of the whole understanding of the of the person versus the rational being, which is a very sort of Western psychology, taking the Islamic psychology perspective. So now when you apply that lens to productivity, again, it shifts a lot of things. So you're right, it's, it's been work, it's we're working backwards, the deeper issues. 
And I feel like that gave us more grounding to then come out and say, okay, well, based on that, how are we going to organize our life? How are we going to organize our priorities? How are we going to focus on what, what's important, not important? How do we deal with challenges of life? I think that that philosophical framework has been incredible. But yeah, it's it's not been it's not been something we started off, you know, ideas should start off with it, but I think it kind of helped us to work backwards. I'm, I'm curious. So you sort of hinted at it, um, mm-hmm. but in, in the process, let's say writing this book or even your own journey of kind of working through this material and, and all that, did you start to change how you define success? Because one, one thing that I've noticed is a lot, you know, depending on what you're reading, everyone has either a different definition or there's a different assumption as to what success might be, right? Like one may be a societal assumption that success means maximizing your, you know, earning potential or maximizing the the reach of your business or impact of your, you know, whatever it it, it might be. But did you find yourself, and and I don't, I know at a, at a basic level, we understand successes in the Akhir and all those things, but in, in fine-tuning that definition, did you find yourself maybe having to revisit some assumptions? You know, what, what comes to mind right now is, is that I've become much more aware of being successful in the moment-to-moment part of life, right? Like, you know what? If I wake up this morning, prayed Fajr on time, did math card, that's success. Right? I feel, feel great. You know, if I've not didn't snap at my kids and able, was able to like just be more present and not distract my phone, that's some of the success if I'm able to make those right choices. So I feel like it's become more moment to moment success versus some kind of long-term goals you want to achieve in life and, you know, things you want to get out of your to-do list. So I guess in the process of writing the book, I became more mindful of the more moment to moment sort of decisions that if you make them over time, that, that that's what made, what's really successful, being able to make those decisions on a day-to-day basis. Simple things from what time you wake up to the things you do versus making the most of your time versus just wasting your time watching, you know, YouTube videos or just, just you know, you know wasting time on things that, that doesn't matter. So I think that would be how I started to define success. And the second one I would say is how you react to what's happening. So how do you react to something, some, something you know, thrown your way or someone snapping at you or... You know, someone just being just you know just annoying in some way, and or sending a nasty email. Like, how do you react? I feel like being able to react in a way that's that's meaningful and positive has been very helpful. Like I was re- read today, I listened today to 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 to, to, to talk about the idea of taysir, Allah making things easy for you. He goes, it's not that Allah makes things easier outwardly. Sometimes that happens, but that He makes things easy for you inwardly. So you're going through this really rough time but you're just not as stressed about it. You're not as like, you just, just alhamdulillah, you're taking, you're taking it easy, despite it being like a humongous difficulty. I think that that by itself is, is huge success because then you can go through anything in life and still make it through, so to speak. One, you know, one of the things I found interesting um, was a lot of what you sort of arrive at in in Barakafik, and I feel like this is kind of like a, a common, every Muslim kind of has this complaint that like, well, the world is catching up to the things that we already believed, mm-hmm. right? And I think, you know, one of the things that comes with with hustle culture and kind of a daily grind and all of that, and you start to see pushback. I think one of the articles that you mentioned when you wrote, you know, Baraka culture versus hustle culture, I think that was, if I'm not mistaken, it was a response to an article in the Atlantic about workism, 
uh and i forgot the i forgot the author's name um thompson huh derek thompson derek thompson yeah and you know it and and that article resonated with a lot of people because they were like oh this is what we're falling into and we and we don't like it um but at the same time a lot of what's happening in society we just kind of we're falling in without really assessing and what's interesting is one thing that you mentioned in the book is similar to something that I've also read uh, elsewhere, like in, in completely, let's say, you know, like a, a not an Islamic, in a secular book, which is this idea that, you know, before the aristocracy, like the sign of, of wealth and being elite uh, and kind of being the upper crust of society was that you didn't work, right? You were a fat cat. You just rolled out of bed. You had a team of people catering to your every need. You, you know, went into your your grand dining room and food was served to you. And then you, you know, kind of went out, relaxed, had recreation, came back, you were served another meal, and you just didn't lift a finger to do anything, right? Your laundry was done, your meals were made, your bed was like that was the sign of aristocracy. And now fast forward and in the very again, very recent past. You know, for us, like 10 years might seem like a long time, but in the grand scheme of things, 10 is a 10 years is a drop in the bucket in terms of of social trends. But now the sign of aristocracy is actually that you're you're never off. Right. The the sign is that, oh, the billionaire is responding to emails 24 hours a day. And so therefore you've got no excuse. The the people who have the most successful businesses are the ones who are producing the most content and the ones who are you know, always on and and engaging with their customers or responding to people on social media or they're, you know, in the office from morning to night. Um, how does kind of what what did you see that was interesting to you? And then also in challenging and overcoming that mindset, because it has become a norm in, in some respects. Yeah, I know. 100%. It's funny. The first time I heard that, like, you know, the fact that we live in a time, a weird time with which our choosing to work um, is actually from Sayyid Muhammad Al-Naqib Al-Abtas, who's actually a, almost like a Malaysian Islamic philosopher who wrote about secularism in Islam. There's a great book on secularism in Islam. And he was he was talking about like, is, is, is a historic weird? The weirdest thing I've noticed so far is seeing the rich wanting to work, right? He's like, he's like that's so weird. And, and, it's, it's, and then then also the article on the workism, same thing, that the, the rich is choosing to work. And like you said, because people start to derive meaning and purpose from work. Work has become a religion. You know, think about what is the role of religion? It gives you purpose in life. It gives you community. It gives you values that you live up to. So in the absence of religion, it's like, all right, then work becomes the centerpiece of my life. That's the purpose of my life. The community is my colleagues and my, you know, my customers, my clients, my shareholders, my stakeholders, right? And the values, values of like, hey, if the one, the more you work, the more you get promoted. If the if you pull out all nighter, amazing, you are you're a hustler. You know, we'll give you more promotion, we'll give you the big paycheck, the bonus check. So that becomes a definition. Now, the, what's what's interesting is that the Muslims who supposedly have understand what the purpose in life is, have fallen for that trap. And I think there is this book by uh, Dr. Melissa. She wrote about inventing laziness. And she spoke about how in the Ottoman Empire, um, when you look at books of morality, which are like self-help books of that time, you know, for up 16th, 17th, 18th century, they were very much about, you know what, have sufficient income for yourself and your family, 
focus on, you know, you know, have tawakkul, have ibadah, you know, the idea of work or workism was not there. But then in 18th, 19th century, as those pressures in the Ottoman Empire to basically catch up to Europe, those morality books shifted and started, well, you know, you should be working harder, you should be, be a productive citizen of the ummah. If you're not going to do the ummah, then you're failing your ummah. Right. So there's a sort of pressure to kind of start adopting workism. And then, of course, across the Muslim world, we've all adopted that mindset of saying, oh, are we are valued by our work. And then that's whole the whole thing about, you know, which college you go to, which job you graduate with. And of course, you know, who you end up marrying in a, it, the entire society has been organized based on work, not based on this idea of worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's freaky. And that's why. I hear sometimes there's a there's a mother who reached out to me and goes, Oh, you know, my daughter, she's a she's a doctor and she she's you know, she's really busy and and you know, she comes back home and she has to pray all her prayers because she has no time to pray at, at the hospital. And she's like, Is it okay if she like skips some prayers because so she can sleep early so she can be bright and early to work? I'm like, whoa, whoa, like we've completely missed the missed the boat here. We made work as the centerpiece of our life. And therefore, organizing religion, organizing spirituality around it versus work being the centerpiece of our life. And then, yes, work fits into that. And I think, and people struggle with this. I mean, again, sometimes people think of this heresy to think like this because you're like, wait, what do you mean? We should not work or I shouldn't be, you know, when what about, well, that's why the Muslims are almost so backward, right? You may get that, you know, that backlash again. But it's like, guys, it doesn't mean to let go of work or to not be productive. But just get your priorities right. Let's let's centerpiece ourselves. Let's you know center Allah Subhanahu wa Taala Akhirah. You know as the centerpiece of life. And then from that, yes, build a successful business, build a career. But don't try to to kind of flip the script and and expect things to work. You know, kind of squeezing somehow. How can I? If someone says, "Can I have hustle culture?" But but then with a bit of baraka, like we're trying our best to make it well, work. I think, I think yeah. that's a challenge, right? Like, what is what is the balance? And I think it's easy to become reductionist to either side, right? Like say, oh, you know, I, I should skip my prayers and and focus on careers is one extreme. And then the other is like, oh, I should just, uh, you know, oh, you're, you're saying I should just sit in the mushroom and pray all day and not go to work, right? So it becomes very reductionist in both ways. But I think, I think the challenge is like, there's, there's questions that arise in people's minds as to, okay, I understand the centering and, and balance of my life is with my relationship with Allah. But where is the balance in terms of, you know, I I am ambitious in my career. I, you know, I do have the work ethic of being a top performer. I want to be a top performer. Um, I do want to get promoted. And, and, the, and, and it might not be because of, you know, this is me maximizing my identity as a, employee or value creator or whatever it might be but it might just be my own my own personal sense of self-fulfillment right that uh you know these are challenges i overcome them these are interesting problems to me i you know enjoy the work it might be out of an obligation that i need to do this to support my family to provide them with you know again we know risk comes from allah but provide the best that i'm able to as part of my responsibility and all those things so where is that balance? Because I think one thing that gets kind of the stray, the stray bullet in this conversation ends up being, well, if you're baraka centered, then it's almost like you have to lop off ambition uh, or your own career goals or things like that. So how, 
what's your advice in terms of finding the right balance? Because I think that's where it gets difficult. I think the two extremes are fairly easy to spot. And, you know, everyone kind of jumps to those because they're easier to argue, but it's that middle that gets really messy and trying to figure out, well, what does this look like in practice? What does it look like if I am indeed working, you know, 10 hour days, maybe sometimes it's 12 hour days, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- things of that nature. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it, it is. It is the heart of art. And I think there's two ways I could look at that. One is back to getting intentions, right? Like, what's the intention of me wanting those ambition, right? And and it's hard because intention is very slippery. You can start with the good intentions, right? But then it gets very easy to get caught up. So I think just constantly asking yourself, what's my nia? What's my nia? What's the intention? So that's why we, we're big about setting intentions list for each day or intention what's your intention for this week what's the intention for this project what's the intention for this project you're going to you know for this client you're going to meet right now thinking about intentions kind of forces you to really assess things based on this again this baraka paradigm where you're trying to elevate yourself from doing things just for yourself and egocentricity and and kind of like reputation and honor and fame to saying can i can i move up to the higher ranks of intention doing things for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, doing things support my family, doing things where I know the impact of my work, if I am successful, will help a lot of people, which is which is the proper purpose of our life is to model out to have to to you know facilitate cultivate civilization on this earth. So that's one aspect, kind of the intention, being really conscious of that. The second thing is and that's where the test comes in, is where if something comes along the way that might hamper your ambition but you know it's the right thing to do do you still sort of hold on to your work or do you jump ship and say you know alhamdulillah for example again let's say you're on a very promising trajectory in your career doing really well but now you have young kids and they need your attention time or you have elder parents they need your attention time those are responsibilities that come along do you reduce your performance in in area that you have feel very fulfilled in, in order to focus on an area else that's that's also it's important, but it's your help, it's a responsibility you have to fulfill or not. How's our culture say, forget it. No, 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 don't worry. Like, you just got to focus. You need kids and parents, you'll sort them out. Put them in a nursing home, figure this out. Like, you know, just like, just like, don't let that get in the way of your hustling. You know, just, just you got to keep going. But our culture, like, it's about, it's, it's, it's always, it, it, it's like see the seasons of life. Some seasons you go all in with your work. Sometimes you got to back down a little bit to fulfill the other half. Otherwise, you're not fulfilling the half, which you're going to be held responsible for. So I feel like that's where the two, maybe the two way to balance it. One is intention. Other one is recognizing seasons of life and saying, am I at any point in time, is this the best use of my energy, my focus and time, given my ambition, given my responsibilities, given the areas of life that I've been set up for? I think, you know, one of the examples that you mentioned, right, the idea of, let's say, if I'm sacrificing to care for a parent or spend more time at home, I think the challenge for people is that it cre- it can create a sense of agitation in the heart, that I'm not maximizing what I could be or what I should be, or maybe it's even just, it might flat just be what I want to do. Yeah. It, it just might be what I I just enjoy doing and I'm having to sacrifice it. Um, what's the relationship between baraka and contentment? Because it feels like that that type of a sacrifice can only be, and, it, and that is, I mean, it's you're putting aside something personal for the sake of someone else, right? 
And it feels like that sacrifice can only bring contentment into your heart if you have firm belief that Allah will A, reward you, yeah. uh, but also, as Muslim said, replace it with something better. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I wrote an article like, contemptuous ambition, right? Because it's not that we don't have ambition or as Muslims not have ambitions. I read a famous story of Amr ibn Aziz who said, you know, when he was in Medina, he wanted to become the Wali of Medina, the governor of Medina. And, you know, he became governor of Medina. Then when he became governor of Medina, he wanted to become the Wali of uh, Kufa, okay, like some city in Iraq, and became the governor of that city. And then, sorry, and then, you know, sorry, when he became Wali of Medina, he wanted to become, he wanted to marry the daughter of the Khalifa, Fatima bint Abdul Malik Nurwan. He wanted to marry the daughter of the Khalifa, so, he, you know, eventually married her. And then when he married the daughter of the Khalifa, he's like, he wanted to become the Khalifa, right? So he had ambition. And this is Amr al-Aziz, we know him very aesthetic, who, you know, at, when he became the Khalifa, he was, you know, he was like actually rejecting all of this. Like, what, what am I seeking here? But he himself said, when I got to that position, I, I said, well, now my ambition is to get Jannah, right? Because he almost like hit, hit, he hit the ceiling of ambitions, like let me ambitions to get to Jannah. So I think having those ambitions is almost like, there's, there's nothing wrong having ambitions, nothing bad. I mean, if anything, we, sh we need an Ummah that has high ambitions. Right, there's a whole book about Salah al-Ummah that the Ummah's success in having high ambitions. As an Ummah, we have an issue with ambition. We are just we just feel so defeated, feel so lowly, feel like we don't have this big inspirational, you know, goals, intentions, things we want to focus on. So I think we should definitely put more on that time, more on that front. But while we're trying to get to our ambitions, when things get dealt right cards get dealt on us you know a sickness an elder parent a young child in special need how you know having the contentment to be able to say what okay this is my ambition is there but this is the challenge i have now which i need to tackle with and i'm radi i'm fully content with allah's decree and i'm not be i'm not feeling that oh my i should be somewhere i should not be you know one of uh dr musa uh sheikh musa Hori, he's a dubai islamic bank manager he has a thing about as his statement says, you're always at the right place at the right time. You're never in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because by saying, if you say I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, that means you're almost like, you're almost not accepting Allah's decree. Yeah. You are always at the right place at the right time. The question is then how do you react, right? Like I said, having the internal calmness, internal contentment, internal belief that, you know, Allah, you placed in front of me for a reason. I'm focused on this. While still having the ambition, while still having the full intention to fulfill your ambition, and sometimes you might not, you might not be the one who fulfills your intention, but someone else would come after you and fulfill it, that intention for you. There's always that element of well as well. One of the, I think one of the challenges with, with those mindsets with, a a baraka culture, right, is that sometimes it's going to be, or not sometimes, most of the time, it's going to be, at odds with what are the prevailing norms uh, or values of society? Where do you see kind of the biggest conflicts between Baraka culture and that? Um, and I, I don't just mean like, oh, capitalism, versus, you know, dunya versus akra. I don't, I don't mean just that, but I mean kind of maybe a little bit deeper in, in the sense of where are those Baraka challenges and how do we, you know, be more intentional about correcting our mindset to align with, those baraka values yeah it's, it's why it's one of the challenges of this is that like i said it's, it's culture right culture is not a personal thing culture means society culture means family culture means people around you if you want to adopt but a culture but then it's your whole family is pushing you in the hustle culture environment it's hard right 
if you want to adopt butter culture, but the whole company is very hustle driven, it's hard. So I think there's that's why I kept saying it's about it's culture. And and I was making the argument in the book that this culture was prevalent. Right now, it's an anomaly that we're not living that culture, especially in the most majority countries, the most majority world, because we've lost that the compass that makes us feel confident that what we have is meaningful, what we have is something that people should emulate and find beneficial, find benefit. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing would be um, whether, again, it's almost like, again, almost like ask, is that, that's why I try to use these little tools, like what's your intention versus what's your to-do list, right? Uh, think about, you know, I talk about this intention versus uh, what's your impact versus well, just- can, your... can I pause you for a second? So, okay, so we've mentioned intention a few times. Yeah. No one is ever going to assess and kind of self-assess a bad intention. Or not often, or we're maybe sometimes we're not going to be super honest with ourselves. Yeah. How do we assess our intention? How do we do it honestly? Yeah. Because I think that that can be difficult. Because I'm not just gonna I'm not gonna be like, hey, you know what? I'm I'm attending this conference because I want to get richer, or you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, I'm always gonna even in a self-assessment try to give myself some something that makes myself look good, right? That's the nature of of the ego of man, but how how do you self-assess intention? Because, because I understand the importance of it, right? But I think a lot of times people will hear it and it just sounds like, so we've heard about intention a million times throughout our lives. Like, why do you keep harping on this intention thing? How do we actually start to self-assess and make some progress with that? Love that. So I have three tests. The first one, I call it the criticism test. When someone criticizes you on that project or that article or that email or that thing you're involved with, how do you react? Do you like get really worked up, you know, really annoyed? Do you think, oh my God, who this person think they are? And da, 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 da. Or do you, all right, yeah, feedback hurts. Sometimes see feedback is negative feedback and can, can knock down in confidence. But you're like, there's something here I might need to learn about myself or there's something here that's important. I should, I should take it. If you have the right intentions, you'll take that feedback, assess it. If it's legit, you'll incorporate it. If it's not legit, you'll just discard it without getting really worked up about it. A lot of times when we get criticized for things, it just we find it hard to stay calm. We find we take it personally. So that's the first. So that's that's the test. Me test the intention. If it's for Allah's sake or for Akhirah's sake, you should be able to absorb that intention, absorb that criticism without affecting your effort or intention or wanting to some people give up if they get criticized they just give up on the whole thing like oh forget it that's just too much the second one is the what if it what if it fails so say you start a project you go to this conference you take and, and you just it completely fails will you still carry on will you if you fulfill that let's say you're trying to memorize quran right and you failed so many times will you still keep going or will you just say i oh, forget it i'm not meant to memorize quran like the the failing the sometimes the failure does it stop you or does it just you know keep you keep going if you right intention you'll keep going even if you quote unquote fail not achieve success last examples Nuh alayhi salam right nine fifty years calling his people and quote unquote he failed to convert his people but he's considered success someone else was saying I've tried for hundred nine hundred years oops I I failed like there's no way I could succeed in this um, the set third test would be what if you get no benefit out of this? So would you do something? Let's say again, you're taking care of um, 
a healthy parent, you know, there's no reward, there's no social media posts, you can you can get a kick out of it. Like there's no benefit you get out of something, right? Will you still do it? Or let's say you let's say there's someone who's who's you know who's poor in the neighborhood and you just go around and help them. No one knows about you, no one, no one knows anything about it. If you get no zero benefit from this person, zero benefit from this thing, would you still do it? I think those are those are three. So those are the three tests I would say that would challenge you to think, okay, is this really for Los Pantanas sake? Is this really for the right thing or not? Um I remember when when um again sometimes if you if you if you want to test your own intelligence, this famous story, Imam Malik, Imam Malik, who read the Motta, and then he said, Well, love, this is sincerely for you. And he and he kind of said, Don't don't make this book uh get wet. And he kind of threw it in the river just like to test himself, the kind of thing. And this is whole like this I'm gonna show you for real story, but this idea of they were so they were so sincere that they they were willing to they were saying I'm I'm pretty sure my I'm confident about my sincerity versus we're like we're not sure we we keep on we keep double double doubting ourselves so that that was the three tests I'd say benefit test criticism test what if it failed test basically one all right I know we're coming up on time um any you know. As you were writing the book, what was maybe the most surprising thing you learned about Baraka? Or let's say the hardest to implement that you learned. The hardest to implement um, is intentions, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> that's the thought is because it keeps on fluctuating. And and, and again, if you think you're doing all the time, sake, but then someone sends you a nasty email, like, oh, I get annoyed. So you realize, wait, this, this is a criticism test, right? You feel that test wants one for sure. The second thing is um, it's sometimes think it's not just the rituals, right? The rituals play a big role to attract baraka, but sometimes not the rituals. It's not only the rituals. Yes, have the rituals, the salawat, the salat, adhkar, the Quran. Those are important source of baraka. And this is why in my when I wrote the book, most people expect me to write a book which was just about these sources of baraka, right? But I kind of put them in the appendix. Okay, yeah, these are sources of baraka. Yeah, like, should we sort of calf every Friday? You should make this car every day. You should, you know, do this. And it's like, okay, cool. I can check all these boxes. Boom. I think it's the and, that, and that's not to minimize the value of doing those things. They're, it's a foundation. Like, you have to do them, but you got to build on them. Exactly. The hardest part is the mindsets. We know, for example, abundance, minds versus scarcity. We talk about that a lot, right? Abundance, minds versus scarcity mindset. Like having that in the day-to-day -day of when I'm running a business, there's a competition. Having an abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset. You know, you know the idea of, for example, sabr and real sabr, right? Where I think there was an example you mentioned, I believe it was in your book, um, that some of the merchant communities, you know, long ago if they saw you know they were let's say all selling similar goods right but they saw that you know one of the businesses didn't do a lot of business that day they would go and help out that person uh versus kind of being in the cutthroat cutthroat competition of like i'm gonna i'm gonna you know kind of step on his neck and drive him out of business and take the customers that's it so i think that for me is the harder part um not having i said for example like i'm doing um, working with some from organizations talk about culture issues, culture change, and the word like hasad keeps coming up. Like I'm like wow, like hasad is a is a serious issue where people struggle. Like how do you how do you tackle hasad in a corporate environment, right? In a hustle culture, like yeah, hasad is a fuel because then you're gonna you're gonna compete and step out and you're gonna go and achieve your you know best result. But you know the hasad is is a, is a, is you know 
uh, you know, the Arabs say, Al-Hasud la yasud, like the, the person who always has hasad will never lead because he's always trying to put other people down. He's not, he won't lead, basically. So, so it's interesting. I think the challenge, and I, I'm kind of curious as, as to how you tackle it, but I think, I think for me, the hard part about hasad is that it, it doesn't crop up on the obvious things. So, I, for example, I'm not going to have hasad of the CEO of the company. Because that's a completely different stratosphere from where I am. But if my peer, yep. who is the same age as me, gets promoted first to just a slightly higher level, as maybe a slightly higher, like, it's not life-changing, but there's more hasad over that than, let's say, over the person who's making double your income. Yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And and, and again, so that's, that's, that's the hardest part about a culture is being those mindsets. When you when you checking yourself, being introspective, like wait a second, why am I feeling hasad? That's not helpful. That's not healthy. Like, like always constantly checking your mindsets, how you think about things, your values. And that's what I said to you in the beginning. Like I've realized it's it's about the moment to moment success. If 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 somebody gets promoted who's a peer and you don't feel hasad, in fact, you actually go out and congratulate him. Or if you, if you do feel hasad, you work on that and you congratulate that person. I feel like that is success. You know, you've mastered yourself there and you've basically opened up a whole door of barakah in your life versus if you just let those things fester, even if you do all the rituals, right? You know, mashallah, like you do all the rituals. I remember there's a story of a, of a, a, a manager who gave a like, you know, average performance to one of his, you know, to his direct reports, you know, he's getting SPMS and all that. It's, it's called a performance management system. And he was gave, he gave a, you know, a low rating, deservedly the guy was not a high performer and this person you know over the weekend went to make umrah he was living in saudi went to umrah made dua you know came back so the manager came to him uh next day and, and people told oh by the way he went to umrah made dua that you know you'll change the rating for him right and the manager went to him he kissed his forehead and goes you know may Allah accept your umrah but i'm not gonna change your rating <laughs> it's like the idea is that yes you we think sometimes we we just because you are doing these rituals, right, which are important, is foundational, doesn't change the fact that you yourself need to be, you know, step up your game, need to do your best, need to, you know, have the right values, right mindsets, have the right akhlaq. So, feel sometimes we become either too ritualistic um, that we've forgotten these moment-to-moment -moment stuff we need to be aware of. Well, I think, I mean, I think a large part of it is, and kind of going back to that, the culture element, right? The a lot of the culture of society is to create a gap or create a, a divide between the re religious rituals and how you act everywhere else, right? And it's, I think that's a lot of the challenge of implementing the Baraka mindset is they, you know, you're told, yeah, go do the rituals, go make Umrah, go read your Quran in the morning before you come to work, you know, yeah, take your break and and pray, but your mentality needs to align back with where we are, right? It's it's that carryover of what is that recitation of Quran doing like, to my heart, doing to the way that I view the world and all those things and how that makes me act versus conforming to the other norms that society may have. 100%. 100 and that's the hardest part. There's a complete disconnect between our rituals and our degree. That's why, in a way... The antidote is the more is just step up your rituals because if you constantly engage ritual, let's say if you do a buha prayers at work, you do adhkar very often, this like just by engaging rituals more and more often, 
you're kind of crowding out. You're, you're trying to reprogram yourself as well. Because rituals, what they do, they reprogram you, right? When you get up for, when you're fasting, when you do adhkar, when you do Quran, you're reprogramming yourself constantly. At the same time, it's it's like, also they put that spiritual goggles on, right? Those The spiritual lens on. So you're at work, you're seeing something, you're seeing a decision being made, your boss says something to you. Translate that within the spiritual context. Always have that baraka lens on and, and like, okay, how would this translate in a baraka? How would I react in, baraka, in a baraka mindset? And that's why things like intention, things like baraka mindset values help you with that. And, and honestly, I feel like if we do adopt that, not only becomes a culture, but also becomes a branding, especially for us as Muslims in, in the West, where you stand out, you know, because you, you, you don't react in the way people react. You don't you don't have the same mindsets as others. So you, you stand out, right? You become the stranger, right? you become the stranger, but in a good way. And I think that's something we need to just to adopt and, and go with, inshallah. I'm Hajjakalakhir for, for joining me here for this conversation. Anything, any information about the book um, that you want to share? I, I need, I'll have the links for people to get it, but anything else that you want to uh, mention around the book for everyone? No, alhamdulillah. I think I think we're really excited. Um, this is a work of many years, and and you know you you were involved as well. You helped. Thank you for also reviewing the book. I think it's just a matter of um, take the book, study it, learn it, and read it. Of course, you know. And and again, it's, I know it's a big book. It might take a while to go through, it, but honestly speaking. It's a book that, inshallah ta'ala, becomes a reference to adopt this culture and discuss it. I think the best way to learn a book is to actually discuss with others. So if you have a fearful mini halaqa around the book or mini book club um, and just and, and share any thoughts, ideas, feedback, please share. It's not perfect. There's, there's a lot in there. I'm sure there'll be some mistakes in there. So feel free to reach out to give us feedback. You can put my email address or, you know, in the in the show notes as well. Um, looking forward to to getting your feedback, people, about the book, inshallah. Ta'ala. Inshallah. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever podcast player you use. And please rate and review the podcast. As always, if you share it with a friend that's much appreciated, you can check the show notes for all the details and links. See you in the next episode.